Well, good morning, church. Some of you are awake. That's okay. The rest, you'll get there. Uh, but we are glad that you are here uh, to worship with us this morning. Uh, one of the ways that we worship is uh, the reading of God's word and the preaching of God's word. And uh, today we have the great opportunity to finish chapter five, which we've been in the last few weeks, uh, and look at it. So I'd invite you to open up your Bibles, turn to John chapter five. Uh, if you're new to CBC, we have journaling Bibles in the back uh, that contain the whole Gospel of John with pages on the other side to take notes in. Feel free to grab one of those uh, if you would like now or later in the service uh, if you'd like to take notes. It's yours to keep. But let's read John chapter 5 uh, this morning together, verses 31 to the end, verse 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light." But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word guides us, shapes us, teaches us. And this morning, as we spend time reading your word, hearing your word, learning from your word, um, we pray that our hearts and minds would be open, that we would understand the teachings uh, that you are laying out for us here in John chapter 5, uh, that the testimonies that are about you, we would see to be true, and it would lead us to having greater faith and trust in you. Father, we desire to be people who know you, who see you, who hear you, who dwell with you, and our hope that is as we spend time in Scripture this morning, that the result would be that we do hear you, and we do see you, and we do desire even more to dwell with you and have you dwell with us. Father, thank you for your word this morning, and it's in your name that we ask that you would teach us this morning. Amen. Can you remember a time in your life something unbelievable happened? A story too good to be true, you had to share it with somebody, too crazy, nobody seemed to believe you. When you're a kid, it always happens along the lines of, 
uh, some, for me at least, along the lines of sweet bike jumps. You know, you tell your friends, man, you wouldn't believe I was riding my bike, must have been going 100 miles an hour down Williams dirt road. This is, you know, when nobody lived out here in Peoria but me and like four people. And dirt roads were everywhere and we had jumps everywhere. So I tell my friends, we're riding down Williams, I was racing this car, I beat him. Uh, and at the end of it, I didn't slow down enough, you hit a jump, and I must have flown all the way across the whole street. I mean, I got so high in the air. Your friend's first responses are always, no way, prove it. We'll ride over there right now, we'll see if you can go that fast. I'm, fast, I'm faster than you, Randy, they would often say, and they were right. And certainly my words would be proven to be false. But we see something here as you think of your time as a child and think of extraordinary claims that you've heard or that you've made. The first and immediate response is validation. Extraordinary claims are always met with an immediate demand for validation. You say something that nobody can believe, you're going to have to be asked, it's true. I always think of The Office and Michael Scott when they're running to see who can go the fastest. And he runs past the little radar gun and says he's going like 50 miles an hour. And he's like, see, proof. But he refuses to do it again, right? We want to see proof when we hear extraordinary claims. And if you've been here the last two weeks, you remember this chapter started when Jesus healed some type of man that had a physical ailment uh, and had had it for what scripture says was a long time. The issue wasn't that he had healed this man, it was that it took place on a day no work was permitted under Jewish law on the Sabbath. And so upon seeing this man carrying his mat as Jesus has healed him, uh, the Jewish leaders and Jewish men there start to inquire, who told you to pick up this mat and walk? And he's like, I don't know who did it, but this man healed me. And then they find Jesus and Jesus says, I'm glad that you're well. And then people start to question Jesus now that they realize Jesus is the one that has healed this man. This comes to a climactic moment when Jesus cites the authority not just for the healing but for working on the Sabbath when he says that my father has been working until now and so am I. We understand what this means when we read verse 18. It says this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the claim that our section here at the end of chapter 5 is seeking to validate. This is why Jesus is going to point towards various testimonies this morning as proof that this claim is not outlandish or unbelievable. We spent time the last two weeks looking at what it means that Jesus and the Father are one, and today we will simply finish with looking at the validity of this claim. And so our section opens up with Jesus acknowledging a problem. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. We might say, hold on, Jesus, are you saying that if nobody else can witness this, what you're saying is a lie or false? Uh, That's not what is being communicated here. Gary Burge notes this in in his commentary. Uh, In Old Testament law, more than one witness was needed in order to condemn somebody. This comes from Deuteronomy 17.6. This idea was expanded into judicial settings to say that more than one person was needed to confirm somebody's testimony. Jesus' claims are extraordinary, 
But if he is the only one making them, they will carry little weight with his audience. But if the claims are corroborated, they will stand. And so perhaps a better reading of verse 31 would be to say something along the lines of, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not valid, meaning it's inadmissible. It's not going to be accepted in the court of law. Some type of support is necessary if this claim is going to be found to be acceptable. And so Jesus will spend the rest of chapter 5 discussing the corroborating testimonies to his claim and validation of it. And so we see three testimonies this morning. Uh, First, the testimony of John that anticipates Jesus. Second, the testimony of Jesus' works that authenticates Jesus. And the testimony of Scripture which acknowledges Jesus. In these three claims, we see different aspects of why these men, hearing Jesus, talking to Jesus, interrogating Jesus, should believe that when he says, I am equal with the Father, he is not making a blasphemous statement. He is simply communicating the truth. But before we dive into these three testimonies, we do have to acknowledge Jesus points to the Father. Verse 32, Jesus says, I know one who bears witness about me, and his testimony is true. This certainly is referring to God the Father. What Jesus is saying before he even goes to the evidence that these people would accept is that I know the testimony that God bears about me. And that's why I have the confidence to say what I say. I'm not some crazy man. I know the Father, and he confirms my claim to divinity. We discussed last week this aspect of the Father and the Son. How are they the same? Uh, So we don't need to spend much more time on that this morning. But in a nutshell, Jesus is saying before he even gives his defense, I know who I am, and I, do not, and I do what I do because I do what the Father has sent me to do. The end of verse 30, which we discussed last week, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In short, Jesus, I do what I do, and I know my claim is true because the Father, God, has sent me. So Jesus then moves to the testimony of their day, and he starts with John the Baptist. And so at the beginning of verse 33, it says, you sent to John, meaning these people have inquired of John's testimony. They know John's testimony. And what we see very clearly is the testimony of John the Baptist anticipated Jesus. These men that are questioning Jesus held John the Baptist, no doubt, in high respect. And John had borne witness to these individuals that the Messiah was coming and had indeed even publicly recognized Jesus as the Messiah, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus does not need, though, the testimony of man, and so that's why he points to John, you've inquired of John, you know that what he bears about me is true. Uh, but, verse 34, the testimony, uh, not that the testimony I receive is from man. Jesus is saying, you should believe this, Because John said it, and you believed him, and he was talking about me. But before we talk about this even further, know that I do not need the testimony of man to make my claim or to have my authority, for that comes from the Father. Although everything John said about Jesus was true, Jesus could not accept human testimony, for he did not depend on man to establish who he was. He was not the Messiah because the people recognized him as the Messiah, He was the Messiah because he was the Messiah. He came from the Father. Nevertheless, Jesus shares this testimony. 
And for the sake of these people that are questioning them, he points towards this testimony, not just as evidence for his claim, but for even a greater purpose. What does he say? End of verse 34. I say these things so that you may be saved. Why is this? Why does he want these people to understand John's testimony? Because through John's testimony, they might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and hear and find salvation. It goes on to talk about John as a burning and shining lamp that the people have enjoyed and indeed even rejoiced in. The light that shone around John created great excitement. In the New Testament and even in Josephus, who is an ancient Jewish historian, it is recorded that the testimony and the witness and the preaching of John the Baptist generated intense and significant messianic excitement. Meaning that when people heard John the Baptist, they got really, really excited because they knew the time has come, we are going to see the Savior. They're expecting this. And so they're excited that God is going to bring his Messiah finally for the deliverance and the good of his people. But they were expecting uh, the Savior would soon appear, and they have great joy, but the unfortunate reality is that they reject the Savior. They rejoiced in the light of John. They were excited that God's time had come, that the Messiah would soon be here, that salvation would come to God's people. And yet, maybe they got bored of it, or maybe they just didn't like the kind of Messiah that they were seeing. They had enjoyed John's light, but they had failed and rejected the one that John's light had sought sought to illuminate. John wanted to illuminate Jesus, and yet when Jesus comes and he says, John's message should be an illumination of who I am, it points you towards who I am, you have yet rejected me. They were looking for the Messiah that they wanted and not the Messiah that God had sent. They were excited to hear about it, but now have refused to submit to it when the opportunity came. It's a tragic turn of events. But nevertheless, Jesus points them towards it to show how they should be excited about John's message and even more excited that the fulfillment of John's message is here. And that if they would just remember the work of John Remember his testimony, remember what he talked about, remember the excitement that they had in anticipating the Messiah, that they might now see that the Messiah is here, and as a result, trust in him and be granted life. This is a reminder for us today. We, like John, have the ability to be testifiers and point people towards Christ. There's a reason that in the commissioning of his people in Acts 1-8, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he tells them that they're going to be his witnesses. They're going to be his testifiers. You're to go about the world, all over the world, and share the good news about me. Tell people who I am and what I've done, that they might have life as well. They might come to know me and to trust me. This is our calling. The way that people are saved is through the preaching and the teaching and the sharing of God's great gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And our job as Christians is to simply share that. We have no power to save people, but we can say, I can be a testifier like John the Baptist, that when people hear my testimony of who God is and what he's done, they might come to believe in him as well. So let's take the opportunity to do that.
But if the testimony of John simply attests or points towards Jesus, he continues to make further appeals in verse 36. And here we see the second testimony, the testimony of his works. And we see here in the testimony of his works that Jesus is saying these works authenticate me. They prove that I am from the Father. They prove that what I do is genuine, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. And so what are these works? Is it his healing ministry that he's just done at the beginning of chapter 5, bringing this man who had some type of uh, paralysis or blindness, or we're not really sure what, into health? Or is it maybe just his messages that he's delivering as he travels around and tells people about the kingdom of God? Is it his death? Is it his resurrection? I believe it's all of these things. It's his revealing work that he's talking about. The work that he has come to show what the Father's plans are. Jesus is doing these things not on his own accord, as he mentioned, as we talked about last week, but according to Father. And so the work of Jesus here is the further revelation of God's plan for redemption for his creation. Jesus is not working or advancing his own cause. He's not seeking his own glory. He's simply doing the Father's work that the Father's purposes might be revealed to his people. He wants through many different avenues to help people see what God's plan for his creation is. And he's able to do this because he knows the Father, is sent by the Father, and he does the Father's work. And so he points to this work as the testimony of God regarding him. See the work that I'm doing and see that it's God's work, not my work. There's a disclaimer here. If you knew who God was, you would know who I was. But the reality is they don't know God, and so they do not know Jesus. So Jesus here moves from defending himself to bringing judgment on these people. It's no longer this general appeal to believe in me and to trust in me or to listen to John's message. He brings a threefold charge against these people. And I think it reveals why what we're talking about in his work is the revealing work of God's redemption. First, you have never heard his voice. Second, you have never seen his form. Third, he does not dwell in you. This is harsh words for these Jewish people to receive. And the irony is that in Jesus, these people would hear, see, and dwell with God. And yet here God is with them, and they reject him. Jesus has come to bring life and reveal God's plan definitively. And yet they don't see God's work, and they don't accept Jesus. These men are deaf and mute to Jesus' teachings because they are deaf and mute to God. They cannot hear him. They cannot see him. They do not dwell with him. Jesus is doing the Father's work, but they don't even realize it because they don't know what the work of the Father looks like. They don't know the Father at all. And then Jesus reveals why they don't hear, see, and know God. They don't understand the scriptures. This is a heavy charge against the Jewish people. And this is the final testimony that Jesus appeals to as validation that he says, I am who I said I am. The testimony of scripture acknowledges Jesus. And Jesus knows these people might reject John. They might not even see the work that Jesus is doing as authentically from God but they hold scripture in high regard. 
it was necessary for them to pour over scripture, to memorize scripture, and in some cases even wear scripture in a headband on their foreheads. They loved scripture. It was sacred to the Jewish people, and Jesus points to this testimony of scripture as his reason to make the claims that he has made. You condemn me because of your belief in scripture, but I tell you, I'm validated by it. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The tragic failure to grasp God's truth is seen most clearly in their approach to scripture. Not just their rejection of John the Baptist's message and the foreshadowing of Jesus, not just the rejection of the work of Jesus, but they have rejected scripture. They no doubt would push back at this claim. They are people who love to study and search scripture. They are people who have been driven by a high regard to scripture. Unlike people of our day, they didn't need to be prodded and motivated to pick up their Bible and read it daily. They just did it. It was a part of who they were as Jewish people. And yet Jesus points to this scripture as that which brings ultimate condemnation on them. And the issue was their motivation for study. The second half of verse 39 points to this. You study why? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. We, we might say, hold on, time out, pause. Is that not true? Like, is not, not how we understand God's plan. We read it, like, how do we know about Jesus? We read about him. How do we know about his death and resurrection? We read about it. Do we not study scripture so that we know God? So we see the way that his plan has unfolded? Is this really a fair accusation of Jesus? But we misunderstand what Jesus is saying and accusing these people when he condemns them in the second half of verse 39 for thinking that in scripture they have eternal life. He's not condemning them for their study of scripture or their desire to study scripture or even the high value that they place on scripture. He's not saying that the words of scripture don't even point towards salvation, for in fact they do, and that's why he's claiming his scripture is pointing towards him. What he is saying is that their motivation for studying scripture was not to know God or follow God, it was to earn their salvation. These people hoped that if they studied and memorized enough scripture, then God would approve of them. The more that I study, the more God will accept me. Hillel, who is a famous Jewish rabbi and commentator on scripture, died somewhere around 10 AD. So he's a contemporary of Jesus and would have held great influence in his teachings at this time when Jesus is talking, uh, said something along these lines. The more study of the law, the more life. And if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. They study scripture not to know God, but that they might earn just a little bit more life. If I memorize another verse, that's just one more step towards heaven that I'm getting. And Jesus is bringing condemnation on them because of this. Jesus, by contrast, insists that there's nothing intrinsically life-saving about scripture. Reading scripture, studying scripture, memorizing scripture will not save you if one fails to discern the true content and purpose of that scripture. It's good, we should do it, 
But knowledge cannot save. Only Christ can save. And so these people are looking at Scripture as the means of their salvation, and Jesus is saying, you should study the Scripture so that you know who I am. And if you know who I am, then you will have salvation. These are the Scriptures, Jesus says, that testify about me. And we're reminded as we read this that the only way Scripture is effective is when it's pointing towards Christ. Scripture is most effective if it's pointing us and other people towards Jesus. To use it for other means begins to diminish its value and in fact can become a stumbling block. And this is a key for helping us understand Scripture, specifically even the Old Testament. Whether it's a prophecy, so you go back to the promise to Abraham, his famous promise, Genesis 12, right, to be a blessing to all the nations. What does that mean? What does this mean is Jesus. The blessing that Abraham was, that the Jews were going to be for all nations, was going to be Jesus. And so we see even here in Genesis 12, looking forward, this prophecy about the nation of Israel that Abraham was receiving is pointing towards Jesus. Or a type, something like a king. We read about David and all of his exploits and the way that he uh, brought peace to Israel, has defeated God's enemy. What does this point towards? Yes, there's narrative and we can see the important things in the text. But even more, it's pointing towards Christ, that Christ is the king that conquers our enemies, that brings us salvation and peace. All of these ways, when we start to see Scripture as pointing us towards Christ, helps to clarify Scripture and help us to understand that all of it is pointing to Jesus, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. All of Scripture is driving us towards this. All of Scripture is about Christ. If, therefore, some of the Jews refuse to come to Jesus for life, their refusal uh, constitutes evidence that they are not reading Scripture as it's meant to be read. Boltman says this, The world's resistance to God is based on its imagined security, which reaches its highest and most subversive form in religion, and thus, for the Jews in their pattern of life based on Scripture. Their searching in the scriptures makes them deaf to Jesus' word. For these Jewish people, they have this imagined security that they alone have life, that they possess the knowledge and the means to eternal life. They had methods and dogma, but have misunderstood scripture. They're looking to further validate themselves, but they have missed God as a result. This imagined security that he talks about is thinking that they had the key to life, which Jesus exposes them as really having nothing. All of the knowledge, all of the memorized verses, the theology that they had received, the dogma that they practiced, all of it is empty for these people if they can't find Christ and put their anchor in him. For the people of Jesus' day, this is what they have done. They've searched the scriptures, but are deaf to Christ. They just want to perform. How do we know this is the issue at hand? Because Jesus hits the nail on the head, verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is saying, 
My standing is not dependent on whether you accept or reject me. That's been established with the Father. But you should know that you do not receive God because you have rejected me. I do the work of God, but you reject me, and you reject God as a result. This is even more stark when he says, others have come in their own name, and yet you receive them. This isn't just teachers or other people that are wandering around speaking and teaching and talking. This is probably talking about false messiahs, people who have come pretending to be Jesus over the years that have preceded this moment in time, and yet time and time again, the Jewish people have accepted them, followed them, even died for them under different types of rebellions and motivations and following these false messiahs. These people were so willing to accept these messiahs who came under their own power and did things to further their own cause. But Jesus says, I've come, not in my own power, not to further my own cause, but to work according to the power of God and to do the work of God. And yet you reject me. Jesus is setting a different example. He refuses to accept the praise of men. No doubt if he wanted to get the praise of these people, he could have stooped to becoming the kind of Messiah that they wanted. The fiery Messiah who's going to start a rebellion against the Romans, deliver great victory and military for the people. He could have attracted their praise. But his entire commitment, as we've read chapter 5, is otherwise. We see in verse 19, his commitment is to please the Father, and in verse 23, to receive the honor that only the Father can bestow. The reason that these investigators were so willing to accept false messiahs who came in their own name but reject Jesus is now made clear. Like most people then and now, they were heavily dependent on accepting the praise from one another, and they made no effort to obtain the praise that came from God. We have to pause here and say, sometimes this is us. We love praise, do we not? Like who in here doesn't like to be told they're doing a good job? We like it. It could be something silly. I'm out playing basketball and someone says, nice shot. And I'm like, that was a nice shot. You're right. And you puff up your chest and you feel good about yourself. We like praise. And yet Jesus is saying, be careful that you don't search after the praise of man rather than the praise of God. For these people, they were open to the claims of false messiahs who used flattery or who panted after great reputations or whose values were even so closely attuned to their audience that it felt like they were wise. This is a temptation for us. And we're reminded that just because something sounds wise or biblical doesn't mean that it is. We need to test everything with Scripture and compare it to what Scripture says and what Scripture points to in Jesus. The church will always have pressures to deviate, to perform. It's part of fallen human nature. And yet the call for us is to battle these temptations and to, make a good, and to never make a good thing the primary thing and to miss Jesus as a result. We should study the scriptures. We should search the scriptures. We should be people dedicated to God's word who love and delight in reading it day after day after day for it can bring life. But if our validation is becoming those kinds of people who are the whoa, look at those super Christians kinds of people. If that's what we're desiring, we are falling away. We need to be people who desire Jesus. How do we do this? 
we have a correct view of Scripture. When we read Scripture, we ask questions like, what is this showing me about Jesus? What is this asking me to do in submission to Jesus or in light of Jesus? If we're reading the Old Testament, we ask simply, how does this point to Jesus? What is going on here that anticipates Jesus? And we have to always test our motivations and to make sure they're pure. And when they're not, we confess and say, Father, I care too much today what this person thinks of me. Help me to overcome that and just pursue you. We can even discern these motivations by asking questions like, What is Jesus asking from my life right now? What does he want me to see about him and how might I honor him? Rather than thinking about other people, we think about Christ and what he's asking us or telling us or validating about us. And so let's apply this today. What are these verses asking us or telling us about Jesus? They're telling us simply that Jesus is the Messiah and they're asking for us to believe in him that we might have eternal life. All of scripture is pointing towards Jesus. This is what this section is pointing towards. We're asked this morning to simply hear the claim of Jesus' divinity, his plan of salvation, to see the evidence and respond in faith, trusting in Jesus for life. So where do we go from here? One, if you've not confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then do that today. Point blank, The number one thing we see is life in these passages. If you've not confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you haven't responded by putting faith in his saving work on the cross so that you might have eternal life, come and pray with me or Paul and we'll help you down this journey starting this afternoon. Two, in light of Jesus' rebuke of the approach towards scripture demonstrated by the culture at that time, how might we be challenged to read scripture differently in order to see the testimony of scripture with greater clarity? Are we perhaps looking and reading scripture with motivations or even with false understandings of what it's pointing towards? And finally, what is my own testimony saying about my motivations for living the Christian life? Am I looking for the approval of others Or am I responding to the goodness and life-saving grace of Jesus? This is what the passage is asking us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people who see you clearly. We don't want to hear the rebuke of the people who did not hear you, who could not see you, didn't have your word living with them, dwelling with them. Father, we want the opposite. We want to be the people who hear you clearly, who we open up scripture, we hear you taught and preached and discussed, we see your hand in all of the world and all of creation. Lord, we want to be people who hear you and see you, and even more, we want to be people who have you dwelling within us. We want to be your people. And so, Father, help us to submit to you, to trust in you, to have faith in you, and who you've revealed yourself to be, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Father, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts and our minds to bring us into clarity and into submission to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask these things this morning. Amen.